The Detroit is Different podcast is about exposing artistry, business, ideas, and dynamic people, places, and things that make Detroit a mecca. Tune in weekly and subscribe to get the true stories from the people shaping the culture of an American classic city. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Detroit is Different podcast and don't miss the true stories that add to the culture of Detroit. All right. We are back in the Detroit is Different podcast studios, and this is a very creative and special podcast that I have scheduled for today. It is Wednesday, February 28th. It doesn't feel like it is in February because it's definitely, as they say, a snowstorm still a coming to Detroit's way. But we don't let the cold get us down as Prince has let us know that sometimes it snows in April. And I got some special guests today holding us down, representing somebody that is a creative, and she's brought a friend that she finds someone to keep her muse going, somebody to uh, be creative and already very colorful with stories, tales, and different things sort of connected to my neighborhood. I got Sydney Kemp, Mark Denson. How are both of you today? Fantastic, Kari. Just great, Kari. Thanks. Okay, all right. So I just realized I'm like I gotta turn on, turn up Sydney's headphones. So Sydney got the headphones right. on, and she like, okay, now you hear it. yourself, I right? I got it. Yeah. All right, all right. So, um, let's begin this story how we always begin. Detroit is different stories. You or your family, your ties to Detroit, and I, I assume both of you guys are born Detroiters. But uh, wh- how did you guys get to the city of Detroit, or how did your family get here? Sure. So my uh, both of my grandparents are from the South, uh, Alabama. Uh, whereabouts, Alabama? You know, I always ask that question. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a unique tie. A lot of Detroiters have black Detroiters have family in Alabama. Yeah. It's like something unique. Yeah. Just like Mississippi to Chicago. Mississippi in the north. So, you know what? I, shame on me. I do not know exactly where, but okay. uh, my, my grandmother, my grandfather um, came to Detroit from the South. And uh, they actually moved in on um, Tireman Street, um, which is where my mom and her sisters grew up. Okay, and Tireman like around McKenzie, Tireman around like uh, Fable Joy Road, uh, the 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 Exit Nine that KBZ talks about. What, what <laughs> form of Tireman? Uh, Tireman and Livernois. Okay. And that's where my mom grew up. And uh, so I actually, I was born in uh, Hutzel Hospital in Midtown. Um, I grew up in Southfield, and I am currently living on the Lower East Side in West Village. Mm. Lower okay. East Side. Lower East Side. There's a lot of stuff happening on the Lower East Side. Yeah, it's uh, popping. Mark, I'm going to bounce the question to you before I go back to Sydney. Okay. And talk a little bit about what she remembers of, like, I think Livernoy Entirement. I immediately think the Brass Key and uh, Drunken Master and the the street races that were going on. I'm pretty on certain Sydney does guy. not remember the Brass Key. <laughs> but my family, uh, uh, both sides of the family came here from the south. My mom's family's from Pensacola, Florida. Uh, and my dad's family's from uh, Mobile. And, of course, they knew each other because Mobile and Pensacola are pretty close. And they came here, uh, my, both my grandfathers came here for auto, auto jobs um, back in the late 20s and early 30s. And um, so we have a long connection to the city. Uh, my mother uh, grew up in the Brewster Projects, mm-hmm. and her next-door neighbor was uh, Dinah Ross, 
They went to uh, uh, junior high and, and, and Cast Tech together for high school. And my grandmother and Dinah Ross's mom would, would split duty uh, babysitting. My mother had uh, three siblings and, and Dinah Ross had four. So they went back and forth babysitting. And my mother is actually mentioned in Dinah Ross's uh, first, uh, her original biography. And um, if you get to see some of the early Supremes albums, everybody can picture that uh, sequence, glittering sequence dress uh, that the Supremes are wearing. My mother actually made those uh, back back then. Uh, my father's family were actually uh, doing pretty well, construction and property owners. Uh, uh, my, my, my father's parents own uh, property and a business on Claremont. Claremont and uh, what? Claremont, just just off Woodward, uh, closer to the lodge now. Okay, so, uh, so right near where the right, right near where the riot started. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of history there. Um, so uh, my my family came here like a lot of folks uh, with the Great Migration uh, to seek a better better life, and uh, here we are. So that's like uh, what's what's that King Foods? That's what I think about <laughs> when I think about that. That yeah. whole intersection, and because uh, the owner of King Foods was a good friend to a lot of different people, but um, anytime I think of that area, I think it's North End, and I think Dolores Bennett. And yeah, Dolores Bennett, yeah, sure. Constantine, all the rest of it, Little Rock. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes. So, now back to what you remember of that house, and uh, what do you remember of like, that Livernoy Tireman area? Um, just being a kid because so many things impact us differently when we're kids. Yeah, totally. So I, uh, my sister and I used to spend a lot of our time at our grandma's house growing up. Um, our mom would, uh, she's an editor at WDIV and she would work nights. Um, so we would spend time there. Our grandma would watch us after school and stuff like that. So a lot of really great memories. Um, it was a really interesting house. It was uh, two stories and the second level um, was sort of like a there, there was this interesting little attic space that I was always fascinated with as a kid, but couldn't go in there. Um, my mom wouldn't so let was us. So it like attic space? When I think about that, I think like scary movies and stuff. No, it was like a little crawl space, really, okay. just like off the the upper. Um, they put you in a story. crawl space. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I'm I'm scarred to this day. But um, no, it was a great neighborhood. Um, my uh, my sister and I would. Um, spent a lot of time with our cousins from Florida in the summers when they'd come up and we'd play in the backyard. My grandma had a garden. Um, so how big of a backyard was it? It was, uh, it was a pretty decent sized backyard. Um, it was, uh, yeah, you know, like your, your average, um, average house backyard size. And let me, uh, let me say this because it's a lot of people even from New York or LA that listen to this and. We take for granted like how big the houses are and how mm, big backyards are mm-hmm. in the city of Detroit. So we what we do see is the term average is like, you know, yeah, you not, grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. You, yeah. You you were playing, you know, <laughs> you had a stoop and a patch. Stoop and a patch. Yeah. You yeah. were playing tackle football on the street, not because it was just a dare. It mm-hmm. was because you didn't have the space. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, you know, I, I'm definitely aware that um, my mom's house in Southfield, where I grew up, that that house is on two lots. So I that space was like Huge. really important. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just being outside as a kid was a big thing for me. Okay. 
Mark, same question for you. What do you remember so much about, uh, you touched on a couple different neighborhoods, but yeah. what neighborhood stands out as, like, if you had to, um, if Anthony Bourdain was taking you around the city and you had to show him your your childhood home, where would you take him? First of all, I actually took Anthony Bourdain around my city because okay. this is Detroit. But I grew up in the far northwest part of town, um, Old Redford. It was mm-hmm. the last part of the city that was annexed back in the 20s. And uh, some of the things that I remember fondly about growing up, um, is, you know, back back then, the late 60s through the 70s, it was Norman Rockwell stuff. Detroit was a wealthy place. So one of my favorite memories as a kid was um, swimmobiles, where the swimmobiles would pull up in your neighborhood, hook up to the hydrant in the summer. We'd get them twice a year. And, you know, it was a mobile pool. And the kids would just be waiting outside, and the, and the guy in a lab coat and with a little beaker would shake it up and say, okay, the pH level is just right, kids. Come on. And we'd go, ah, you know. So I, I remember all of the experiences that the city afforded us uh, growing up. Um, everything from, you know, like the swimmobile was like part of an education program because you couldn't graduate from DPS unless you knew how to swim back in the day. Okay, so, what what year did that? Because this, <laughs> stories like this go back to like my mom tells me, and she graduated from Central. Yeah. And um, my mom graduated from Central in sixty six. Yeah, I didn't know your mom was white, Kari. But <laughs> but but no, in the early sixties, the, the mid sixties, that's where uh, Carl Levin, our recently retired. Uh, um, U.S. Senator uh, went to Central. Uh, I mean, a lot of those people. Yeah, a lot of uh, Central, Mumford, a lot yeah, of great people my, came out uh, of that. My aunt was like one of the first black people to go to Central. Yeah, I can uh, believe that. Aunt, uh, and then, you know. Uh, We're the beneficiaries but, of that, so. But I was going to ask this question in reference to the swimmobile. Like, she tells me that when she was growing up, it was a book that she had, because I often, like, uh, mm-hmm. like right now, Local government was an actual class where you learn That's right. the difference between uh, state, city, county. Because everything I've about learned civics. about yeah. government was, you know, you learn, and for everybody listening that's, I guess, above a certain age, you learn the Constitution, and Sydney will agree. You learn the Constitution, you learn the three the, the three branches of government, but yeah, you right. never learn anything local. So everything no, you learn and, local and when I was in like junior years. high school in mm-hmm. the 70s, we, um, we certainly had... A civics class that was all about Detroit city government, mm-hmm. and you learned uh, about how the city was formed and uh, all of the things we went through as a community together. It was part of a socialization process, which is still with me today. I'm still very much uh, a, a very staunch Detroiter, and those lessons were reinforced not only in school, but in the other things that that all of the kids kind of took advantage of back then whether it was Little League or scouting or some of the other things, it all reinforced the message about being a good citizen and what those things meant. So social studies, civics classes, and history were all part of that to kind of help you go along, get along kind of thing. But at the time, you know, uh, before everybody was woke, um, we did. We you didn't think anything about it. It was just part of the process, and you absolutely um, learn these things about 
city government, local government, why Detroit was important to the rest of the world. The Detroit I was born into was the fourth largest city in America, and it was one of the wealthiest. Uh, we had two of the three top Fortune 500 companies. So the Detroit I grew up in was not only wealthy, it was diverse. Well, I mean, uh, on that point, being a Walsh graduate, I often <laughs> talk about like uh, every every class at Walsh and a lot of business mm-hmm. schools looks at like the downfall of General Motors, the downfall yeah. of General Motors. And I always say that like the amount of money that General Motors was making was so unprecedented that not only the idea of it failing was tough, quote unquote, it was like. General Motors was bigger than, like, you could have put, like, the last, you could have took, like, the next top five companies, put them together. That's true. And General Motors would have failed if they'd have made that much money that year. Mm-hmm. So, it's like, the uh, the the strength of that was, like, unseen. General Motors was making so much money. Well, if you don't, if you want to put crazy. it in perspective, you know? some of the early uh, people who had, uh, invested in General Motors, we all think of as not Detroit centric kinds of things we all think about sloan kettering um hospital or sloan kettering you know there's these universities and medical research centers but sloan and kettering were both early adopters for general motors uh early investors the fisher family and the rest of them all contributed to what became uh, at that time the silicon valley of its day where detroit was the center of the technological world and we created wealth over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that legacy is still with us, and Detroit's still the only place in the United States outside of D.C. where you can go register a patent because we have the Elijah McCoy Patent Office here in Detroit. Yeah, I mean, it's some unique stuff. And, and then just for everybody knowing, the reason it's called General Motors was because General Motors had so much money, anytime it was a <laughs> car company getting sort of close in competition, they just buy it cre- and continue to make yeah. the car that was best it just uh, cl- shut down any of the operations connected. It to was an accurate description of what they were doing. That's kind yeah. Of genius so branding. it's like you know, it wasn't like you know people think like Tesla is designing a new car or a new car line. It was like no, nah, I'm gonna just go on and buy it. I'm gonna buy Ford and and we'll keep mm-hmm. the Fords we like and the rest we'll scrap. Hmm. So that went on for like about I don't know uh, fifty years. No, GM was on top for a good 70, 75 years. No, on top no, of I'm the saying they're just co-opting and buying all these other oh, companies. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, so that's how you got Chevrolet, Oldsmobile. These were all people. Yeah. Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, um, all, pick pick one. They were all people. Pontiac was even Pontiac, a person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was all, yeah, it was like, I, I'm going to just buy that. Ford was not purchased, but easily at one point in time, it could have been purchased as well. Hmm. Um which uh, I know this is like a different transition as I like Detroit history. I definitely like Detroit black history, but I also love conversations and finding out more about people. Sydney, that brings me to the next thing. We talked about home background, school. What schools were you attending? Sure. So I, um, I went to uh, SPS uh, up until eighth grade. and then SPS? What's SPS? Southfield Public Schools. Okay. So I did... Um, so I did, uh, I went to Montessori, um, and then I was at, um, I was in Southfield for elementary and middle school, and then... Around what years was this? Um, up, up through 2008. 
Okay. Um, so in 2008, uh, my freshman year in high school, I uh, I w- got into Groves uh, High School in Birmingham, and I went there for four years of high school, finished that out, and I got to Michigan State, um, where I studied political science and graduated from James Madison College in uh, December 2015. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about like just unpacking Southfield, Groves, Birmingham, what that field was like. Yeah. Um, and then, man, 2008 seems like you can touch it like yesterday. But <laughs> yeah, a lot was still different, let alone uh, uh, the, the Northland was open. So what, uh, <laughs> what was um, what was that like? Um, what was Southfield like um, being then? Uh, in that in that time, like that 2000s, what was that? Yeah, um, Southfield. It was it was a good time to to grow up in Southfield. I made a lot of my close friends that I still keep in contact with today. Um, my couple people from my neighborhood and just folks that I hung out with through school, which is actually where I met my best friend to this day, um, Kristen. Shout out to Kristen in California. She uh, she taught me how to play cello, and um, we we were in orchestra together. I was playing violin at the time, and um, we started hanging out in sixth or seventh grade. And you know, I, I thought the cello was cool, but I think a bigger part of me wanting to learn how to play was so that we could sit next to each other in class and just talk. <laughs> so um, so she ended up teaching me cello, which I still play to this day. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that was a great experience for me. Um, I was a pretty quiet kid, um, all throughout school. I consider myself a bit of a late bloomer. Um, so up through, up through high school, really, I kind of was kind of quiet, kept to myself. Um, college started coming out of my shell a little bit more. And right now you, you really can't like stop me. I'm, (laughs) I'm all the way out there, but, um, uh, high school was a good experience, um, very, very different culture coming from Southfield public schools to Birmingham um, in terms of just social dynamics, um, culture, economics, nothing really negative, but just a different world for me. And I think um, my experience at Groves actually opened me up to a lot of the interests that I still pursue today. Um, like give an example of something that stands out where it was like, Mm, this is different. Just uh, just knowing Groves a little bit as uh, Lord knows I probably know some of the most uh, ghetto kids that ever <laughs> went to Groves because a couple of the people that uh, grew up like uh, anything named after a tree stand. East uh-huh. uh, East like uh, East State East State Fair uh, 75 like I'm connected to the, like that whole you know like that Coney Gardens um you know, some of those people are yeah. like like my people. Um, mm-hmm. So, and just knowing the trouble that they were running into, playing basketball and just getting in trouble every day, and just it's a it's it's definitely a school that even though it has a lot of um, it has many black students, just culturally, it's got to be a lot different than Southfield. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, I actually. I went from a, a school environment that was majority black to a school environment that was majority white. And uh, Birmingham Groves was incredibly diverse, um, but it was defi- the ratio was definitely a lot more white students and black students, which um, opened up a lot um, 
for me culturally and was definitely something to adjust to. I, uh, in middle school, I had actually discovered um, Guitar Hero and was really, that was, that's kind of one of my strongest memories of being, um, being drawn to a specific genre of music is playing Guitar Hero and really identifying with the rock and the punk and the heavy metal songs that they had in the video game. And, you know, growing through a, a majority black school system, you know, nobody else was really into that. I was kind of the weird, quiet kid who drew all the time in class and listened to rock music sometimes. And nobody in my family is really into that sort of music. So when I got to Groves, um, I started hanging out with a lot more kids that were into that, that, uh, that genre of music that were more, um, more into the concerts that I liked. And so that really kind of bloomed my like cultural perspective and um, really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. So it was it was a good experience. I um, I learned a lot, um, met a lot of cool folks, and was able to um, tap into some resources to explore different parts of myself that uh, I didn't know were there, didn't know how to articulate. Okay, and as you talk about that, 08 is a big year just in black American history mm-hmm. for now and evermore. Uh, every every Baptist preacher, I think, from here to, I don't know, every little corner of the coast was speaking about you, per se, saying, like, now nah, a kid can grow up knowing that they can be president. Now nah, a kid <laughs> can grow up knowing that they can be a president. The, yeah. the black kid knows they have no limitation. The skies is uh, their limit. Yeah, we didn't um, have that when I was growing up. That no, was, <laughs> very different. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. Yes. So, so what impact did that have? Being in school, witnessing that, like, what was that like? Yeah, that. Um, you know, looking back, um, I think it had a lot more impact than I realized at the time. Um, I I was actually still kind of, and I this is an ongoing process for everybody, but really just coming into discovering what blackness meant to me. Um, So seeing Obama on TV and just, you know, knowing that that this uh, kind of achievement was possible and that so many people believed in this vision, wanted this vision, voted for this vision twice, uh, that was a a really big thing for me. And that was the first, um, that was, that was one of the first political, um, events that I really kind of tapped into and followed was was that. And I voted for Obama in his uh, his second second term. So that was that was pretty big for me. Hmm. So that's deep. That's deep cuz like I just wanted to ask because we interpret things as man, I don't know what was the political moment that I remember. I have no idea, but I know it was <laughs> not anything like at, probably as productive of a transformative moment. Uh, almost like um, just due to to the lens of witnessing the election of Barack Obama, I I just everything in my gut said like, yeah, we'll probably end up with something that's the complete opposite next. We have that Mm -hmm. right now in our current president. I I think one of the the weird things, uh, when I was growing up, um, I remember being a little kid and my father would, whatever we were doing, we were at home, and a black person was on TV, whatever we were doing, we had to stop to come see it. Come here, I gotta see this, you gotta see this, this is a black person on TV. And then what, what that, era? 
Like what era? Growing, growing up, like, what would you say? Like, 70s? Yeah, it was the late 60s and the 70s. Okay, um, and this is what, let me let me say this for all of the people. Yeah. That means that Mark grew up watching a lot of O.J. Simpson. Because O.J. Simpson was one of the few black people that was on TV He back was, he was. Um, but also, Bill Cosby. Uh, neither yeah, one of those are good guys. examples now. But, <laughs> but, but think about Diane Carroll um, and, you know, her show... Julia, uh, Room 227, where he had um, a split cast. Uh, Bill Cosby had a show called I Spy, but it was not just those shows, but it was like anytime there was somebody black on TV, it was still rare. So And so you had to, you know, we would stop to go see. We would, oh, look. Okay, and I, I still kind of have that in me as like, um, you know, it was definitely more representations in the 90s and 80s, but still, I remember... Like, we were outside... There was no Wakanda back when I was growing up. We were outside playing a pretty intense game of basketball. Mm. You know, and um, and then my sister and uh, April from across the street, like, yo, the Fresh Prince about to come on. Mm. It was the very first episode of the Fresh Prince. So we nice. held off on the game of 21, <laughs> watched Fresh Prince, and then we couldn't even, everybody couldn't get back out because, you know, you go in and it's dark and some kids can't come out again. <laughs> you know, it, it messed up the game of basketball. But that, you know, whereas now I know when Atlanta comes on mm-hmm. next week or whatever, if yeah. I yell outside my window. Yep. It, it, and people forget that watching. when the Fresh Prince was out, it was a little controversial. There were things relative to modern day buffoonery and the comical nature of in depiction of black people even though they were successful. So there's, it's, it's all about perspective. Um, and even today, there, there are similar uh, conversations around uh, depictions of African-Americans on, on uh, television today with some of the modern series. But Fresh uh, Prince? Vincent, yeah. You, uh, yes. It's, it's, I think because it's so, uh, it, it's so few representations, even in the movie Black Panther. Like, I have a gambit of different people that I follow. So, mm-hmm. like, um, especially coming from a background where, you know, I have an African-centered name. I went to African-centered schools. So, I have people that are, uh, that have many problems with the movie Black Panther. And then I have people that are like, this is the greatest thing ever. I, I think it's a it's a good movie. But um, I, it's I a do movie. think that just, just because there are are so few outlets that we embrace with black people. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a new, it, it, it's more of a, um, of a, of a, of a, I don't even want to say responsibility, but it's, it's a different calling and, and accountability that you'll get called to as you do different things. Well, uh, I think that's a common dilemma that, black artists often feel is like are you carrying the weight of your your race and your your culture or are you just an artist expressing and i i think sometimes a movie is just a movie um it doesn't have to be an overriding uh depiction of culture uh, the socio-economic challenges that exist in america Mm -hmm. because of white supremacy well this is this is is why we're here today you know sydney just had this wonderful event just a few days ago Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how she felt about it. I thought it was a great representation of Detroit and local artists here in our wonderful city. Um, but I don't know if you felt the weight of the 
the culture on your shoulders, Sydney. Well, you know, I think, um, and going back a little bit. But you got to give the pretense, Mark, since you gave it. What was the event? What was it about? You got to break it down. Where was it at? Oh, well, you know, you have the progenitor of that right here. I'll let her tell you. (laughs) No, 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 because you just got into your uh, James Lipton. So we're going to have her go into that mode and give the emotions in the the, uh, psychological about it. But you can give the pretext. Well, I think the pretext was um, this is an opportunity to celebrate the creative process as it occurs. Often there's a, a veil of secrecy or... Um, or, or, you know, there's a veil on this whole thing about how things are made, particularly art, and uh, a celebration of art, particularly art in this city, because people forget how much Detroit actually contributes to the cultural uh, landscape, not just in Michigan, but all over the world, and highlighting local artists who are pushing that envelope and all of the folks who are um, making a difference in the local art scene here in Detroit is what Sydney tried to highlight. I, I don't like to put words in her mouth, um, but when I saw it happen, it was, it was amazing to me because we forget this is the same city that gave us uh, Motown, that gave us techno, that gave us you know, Marla Gibbs, Della Reese, and all these other wonderful uh, people who have contributed to our cultural landscape and here's a new and different way to not only highlight that but another way to express it because the art was done live I've never seen anything like that it was an amazing experience for me as an enthusiast mm-hmm. okay so I, I just see it and this is the interpretation of today like I saw it come across my Instagram timeline <laughs> and Facebook timeline a couple of times yeah. and I'm like okay it looks like Sydney is like in uh, creating like this big mural but it looks like a big canvas yeah. so what was it what were you doing how did you feel yeah so and I, I think kind of to tie this to the conversation that we were just exploring about blackness and representations in society and pop culture and media um, and you know our uh, our different experiences growing up in the city. Um, something that really sticks out to me as a millennial is that I I feel very strongly that my generation at this point the society has evolved um, to a place where we have these positive representations of us in our community. And, you know, not only is that something that we see more and more every day on the TV, but it's something that we are creating ourselves. And, you know, it's definitely not perfect. It's there's not as much as I think there could be, but we are well on our way to um, lifting ourselves up and just, you know, showing the world like this is, you know, this is our community. This is normal. We um, we are not just black people, we are people. And, um, you know, the way that we contribute to society isn't necessarily predicated on um, just being black. You know, I may want to produce a piece of art um, and blackness influences this art, but, you know, it's not the only context that you, um, that you see it in or that I want to present it in. Uh, so tying that to the exhibition, um, so last Thursday, February 22, um, we had the debut event uh, for this pop-up series called The Process. And The Process is a bi-monthly, um, every other month, 
event where two or three artists will come together um, and collaborate live to produce an original work of art um, for sale at the end of the night. So really the whole series is premised on um, bringing Detroiters from all walks of life into the creative process. Uh, to Mark's point earlier, I think, and I as an artist myself, um, I recognize this within my creative community. Sometimes people can be a little bit cloistered about the way they do what they do or why they do what they do. And a great way to engage folks and get new supporters and fans and people interested in your work is to let them in on your process. Um, so that's that's what it's all about. And I'm, I'm also striving to create a platform for local talent to um, experiment, challenge, define, refine their work um, through collaboration. Because when you take, you know, two seemingly disparate things, you know, this idea over here and this idea over here, or painting and photography, and you put them together in the same room and say, hey, you know, what if you took a picture and you painted over it or hey what if you collage these paintings on these pictures onto a painted canvas that's where you create new things that's where new ideas are born and there's so much energy in that space um so you know the the things that i'm trying to accomplish with this are one um bringing folks together, uniting Detroiters around the creative process, two, giving local artists a platform to, um, to, to challenge and define and build their work and their portfolio, get a little bit of exposure and uh, generate economic opportunity for them, but also to, uh, to highlight space in the city, in Detroit neighborhoods, um, you know, by nature of this event, the series is a pop-up. So the idea is, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a permanent home, but we are, uh, we're at the Tangent Gallery right now, which is in the Milwaukee Junction neighborhood. Um, and I think it's really important to, to highlight these spaces um, all throughout the city. Um, downtown is a neighborhood, Midtown is a neighborhood, so is Milwaukee Junction. And there's a lot of um, space and and opportunity and just really great experiences to be had um, in these different pockets of the city where you can um, kind of listen to the community and see what's going on, you know, c come to this event, meet some of the artists that live in the area, meet some of the people that live in the area that want to come and see the art. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> a long answer to your question. Um, it's, it's live art. Uh, you know, across disciplines and mediums. Um, and there's food, uh, there's drinks and music. And um, it's a $5 entry and we're planning the next one to happen in April. So watch out for the process number two. As a fan, watching the, being at the event, what I noticed was the diversity of people. I was glad I wasn't the oldest person in the room. <laughs> and there were there were young people, there were families, there were just a, a wide array of folks representing every walk of life that you can think of. And to me, that in Detroit is not, that doesn't happen often enough. And for Sydney to put together an event that drew this kind of audience, I thought was, I, it was amazing to me as a lifelong Detroiter um, that was, that was worth it. The art aside, mm -hmm. that was worth it just to see so many different people taking in this opportunity to celebrate local art 
the art was outstanding too but i i really appreciated the diversity of of folks i mean little kids with their parents and and young people with their grandparents that was awesome to me i, I just an observation sydney i don't know what you thought but i i really appreciated yeah. that thank why, you yeah um, which which leads me to uh why do you think it's important that uh people from different cultural backgrounds and understandings of life uh all focus and, and meet on collected ideas I, so, I will go mark mark question because that was mark's comment so. oh well you know i think sometimes it's important for us to coalesce around things that we have in common uh and to celebrate those things because it's too easy to segregate us around things that don't actually matter or things that are superficial but art is one thing that we can all be subjective about and appreciate, no matter who who the, who makes it. Um, it was a, a space that was neutral um, in that sense, providing people uh, a backdrop and a forum to actually appreciate the artist and the art. So I think it's important to um, give people a way to be together and celebrate the things that we actually share uh, as opposed to the things that potentially can divide us. And maybe that wasn't the intent of the event, uh, or maybe it was, I don't know. But certainly I felt great as an individual, as a person who was there participating and looking at the art and having those miscellaneous conversations. I appreciated the diversity yeah. because Detroit has a history of being highly segregated and you wouldn't have known that at this particular event yeah mm -hmm. and i think to add to that um something that's really important especially in in our city um is to bring folks from different walks of life different parts of the city the metro area the state together um to have conversations i think a lot of times we, you know, we may look over each other or talk over each other and not even acknowledge folks or know that they're there. Um, but this this was, um, you know, done in part as a way to highlight that that space in the city and the people in the city that are doing fantastic work and are incredibly talented artists and great human beings um, and just fostering conversations around that. That's, that's something that I... Um, I personally think that the way to really bring about change is to um, come together and ask questions, you know, um, show show somebody your process. What's life like for you? You know, what what are you going through? What are you going through? Uh, what are the commonalities in that? Um, and I, I, I try to highlight that through art, right? Um, showing that through the creative process and that collaboration between the artists across those disciplines. And, um, you know, by nature, just being kind of like a fun, um, interesting live art event draws people um, from, from all over who see it and say, hey, I saw this thing, it looked interesting, let me check it out. Um, so I think getting all those folks in the room to have conversations with each other, get to know each other, talk around a common thing is really key, especially in today's environment. Cindy's a lot more deep about that than I am. Mm -hmm. I, I, I struck up a conversation with a family. It was four mom, dad, little kids who drove about an hour to get to Milwaukee cool. Junction in Detroit. And they were just um, they were just so enthusiastic about supporting 
uh, art in Detroit and helping their kids experience Detroit in a way they hadn't when they were growing up. And I thought that was amazing. Just talking to them, like, you guys drove here and, you know, we, we struggled, but kind of, you couldn't have found a group of people more, more different, but on the surface, but when we got to talking about art and the experience of the, the commonalities connected you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I have this, uh, as you talk about processing art, is uh, I do think that this is still a very blue collar city. Uh, most times I have artists in here, I, you know, the, the knocking your head against the wall. So like from the rappers I know, to the videographers I know, to the choreographers I know, uh, and the visual artists, um, just the value of what art is. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember I asked Jocelyn Rainey if a person wanted to start their art collection and they wanted to start buying, what should they do? What is the process? Oh. But just you as an artist, what's your flow in, um, in looking? Because I think the tough thing, because it is subjective, like yeah, the the finding personal value from the experience, right? And not not drink, you know, not not. Uh, I guess like uh, bringing yourself down just due to people not connecting to the value, the the intrinsic value of what culture is, yeah, and what artistry is. As you know, this is, you know, this is this will be uh, like I've seen many visual artists. You know, like they'll make a piece and then the, the first thing is like, all right, don't be charging me a lot of money. <laughs> and it's like, man, damn, you already undercut me mm. immediately, which I don't know what that mental process is for the visual artist. I know mm -hmm. for me as a rapper, I just go into doing anything like I have to set up my own money-making mechanism because exactly. I can't rely on any system to pay me because mm -hmm. I'm not about to fight over, you know, these stages to make like $100 and mm -hmm. then another rapper gets the stage and then I end up being bitter towards him yeah. or her. Yeah. You know, so like how do you stay recharged to continue to create and know that the value may not necessarily be something that's quantifiable in dollars per se, mm -hmm. but quantifiable in uh, in in your own personal self worth. Yeah, so I love this question. I have I have so many different answers to this question. Um, so I'm going to start with the process and a, f a couple different things um, in terms of valuing art and what draws people to buying art and just being a, a good business person as an artist, um, which will transition me into my second point about, you know, my personal feelings on it. But the the, the business model that I've built, um, people can engage at multiple levels, right? Um, you can come to the event and um, you can, you know, pay $5 to get in the door and you know, meet some new folks, maybe buy a drink or some food. You could have painted on the large, uh, you know, audience participation canvas where we have a we had a time lapse video of folks going in and just painting their visions on this canvas. Mm. Um, or, you know, you could have bought a piece, um, which there were different pricing tiers for, for each of the pieces, um, some of which were created live that night. Others came from the artist's personal collections. But the point being that, you know, no matter what your economic um, 
means are you can engage in this event at multiple levels and the idea is to make art accessible right so you you can come and just see art being produced you can start to think you know okay this is what i like about this art or what i don't like or you know this inspires me to go check out this museum or you know hit up my artist friend to talk more about um about the field or you could come and and watch the next piece in your collection be created before your very eyes and the a big part of that is um is experience and um i think that that ties closely to the concept of placemaking in development and urban planning where you draw upon the unique qualities of a place of a city um to entice people to come and invest and live and play and work there. So in terms of the art, you know, you come to an event and you see someone making this piece before your very eyes that grabs you. Um, You know, you can walk away from that night with a piece that tells the story of your experience from that event, uh, which is pretty cool, I think, and something that really inspires me. my next point about artists as as wait, bis- let me I'm both think on that and let mm-hmm. me just for everybody listening yes because that's what you're going for we're social creatures so mm-hmm. the experience is really what you're buying no matter what it is it's the experience because mm-hmm. even the high-end art it's the experience of going to wherever you buy that high-end art and then walking out and people looking at you saying like oh man that's that one high-end art guy buy guy mm-hmm. uh, buyer guy so it's like Keep in mind, high-end is not always about price. I know. Mm. But for the most part, to most people, as interpreted, a lot of it does deal with price, you know? Well, and that's that's part of what I'm, I'm hoping to dispel with the experience. The idea is that you have multiple levels that you can engage with the art in. You can come and just look at it. You can watch it being created. Um, you can make some art yourself at the event, or you can buy a piece. And the pieces are priced at different levels, you know, depending on if, you know, hey, I just have a couple bucks to spend on this print versus, you know, I'm somebody who's got some money saved up or I have some uh, disposable income to blow on a bigger piece. And, you know, that that brings me to my next point about artists and, and the business of art. That's um, something that... I think I have a really unique, um, really unique standpoint in as a, an economic development professional and a creative entrepreneur. Um, I understand the value of pricing your art and making sure that you are paying yourself and that you're getting compensated for your work and your time and your talents. Um, but also recognizing that there's some stuff that you just can't put a price on. And so the sweet spot is the middle ground between those two, but you also need to be paying your bills. You need to make sure, you know, okay, if I wanna be a professional artist, if I wanna do this full time, then I need to figure out how I can eat. I need to figure out, you know, how to price these pieces, how to talk about my art, how to pitch my art to people, how to get into galleries and spaces and places where I can get eyes on my art. Um, I don't think that, and I, I'm not, I don't have any formal training as an artist. Um, so that's something I kind of wrestle with as like a chip on my shoulder a little bit in terms of, you know, well, am I missing something? Is that, you know, something I didn't learn in art school? But I think honestly, there's so much that you can 
learn just by reading books, um, spending time interacting with people. You need to be out in your city, in the community, um, just practicing. And now, now I do have a question in reference to that, especially when it comes to any form of artistry or mm-hmm. like a lot of forms of entertainment or, or, or engaging others. Um, I, I have this discussion a lot, but uh, I call it the Cinderella complex. A lot of <laughs> artists have that. A lot yeah. of artists are thinking to themselves, you know, I'm going to meet Sydney Camp today. When I meet Sydney Camp, she's going to be the vehicle to take me to the level of all of these ideas and, and, and wishes and dreams that I want. You know, I'm mm-hmm. gonna walk down the street and I'm gonna bump right into Oprah. Mm-hmm. As soon as I cut <laughs> through the uh, noise, I'm gonna tell Oprah like, "Yo, yeah. this is what I've been doing, and I know God told me that I was supposed to tell you." And da 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 da. So like a a lot of this is so many artists, mm-hmm. and it's sad and it's tragic because mm-hmm. I've seen artists with Grammys to artists that are are, are are like world-renowned visual artists that end up being taken advantage of because they're so reliant upon someone else to basically give them something. But the challenge of that, I find sometimes, is that a lot of their great art comes through the vulnerability of them relying on some like, the, that process. Well, mm-hmm. Kari, if I may, I, before you respond to uh, yeah, uh, I just want to relate this back to something you, you, a question you asked a few minutes ago around how to get started collecting. And it'll it'll actually go into the question you just asked. All right. You know, I ha- I have a a pretty significant collection of art. I okay. even have loaned art to my job where I work, and you know, in our office we have I have pieces on display. And um, art, you know, collecting art um, for those of us who you know those like if you can't play, you coach. So you know, I'm not I'm not an artist, but I have an appreciation. Uh, for for uh, my city and the things that the city gives rise to, the things that it gives birth to. So most people collect around things that are emotionally important to them, that speak to them. And price point is a secondary consideration. And so when you meet an artist uh, at various levels of their career, some who are starting, some who are mid-career, some who are well-known. So price point is important but it's it collecting is not about money it's about feeling what makes you feel good i've been collecting for a long time well over 30 years now and whether it's starting with you know concert posters and now i have several really interesting unique pieces one of a kind that are you know pretty awesome and well known they're museum quality but but the thing is when you collect it's a it's a very interesting validation of the artist when you say, I'm willing to pay uh, this price for that, they get something out of that. But what we receive as collectors is infinitely more, um, is infinitely more uh, fulfilling because the artists are looking for a different kind of validation, not just a paycheck. Um, there's, there's something there that, is, that money can't buy. Mm-hmm. But when I, um, I'm looking at... Um, things that reflect where I may be at a particular moment in time. It may be where I live, how I'm feeling, or just my mood. And I find things that reflect that. And so art is an expression not just for the person who produced the art, but also the person who buys and collects it. And um, so, like, I might change out my art at home, 
based on the season, based on I'm doing a party, I'm having a party. And those kinds of things are really, really important. So artists, I think often, Sydney helps them with the business aspect of it. I'm a collector. I don't know anything about it. I, I, I couldn't draw a good stick figure. If so let me ask well, you this. Let, just oh. to interject. Come in. Come I, I love what you just said about collecting. And I think to add to that, something that a lot of people um, mistakenly believe is that when you collect art, it's expensive. And, you know, it's a big thing. And, you know, you have to go to these really high-end places and do these really fancy things. And there's a lot of anxiety around that. And it's that's not always what art is. And to your point, you buy what you feel. You buy what you feel. You buy exactly. what you feel. And there's there's so much hype around, you know, oh, this is the next hot thing. This is the next hot artist. Well, why are they hot? You know, what, do they do they even speak to me? Um, and, you know, then price comes into play. Can I even afford this? Do I want to buy this? So a really big thing, I think, is support living artists, support local artists. You can get so many great Amen. pieces at, you know, your local art fairs. Um, local, like your point about concert posters, that's art, it right? Is art. You know, art ranges from something that you might like barter with, you know, hey, I have this, do you want to trade for this painting or, right. So I, uh, yeah, it could be that or it can be a multi-million dollar piece and it all depends on your means. And I really encourage people to just start thinking about, you know, what, what art do I like? Why do I like it? Where can I find that locally? What's my price point? What can I afford? Because it, it is not unattainable. And I think the more people that start buying art, you know, that's that's better for everyone. That's true. Okay. Now, this is the question I got for you then, Mark. Okay. As collector. This was my question. All right. So it's different tiers of different things. Like, um, like you know, when I, I, I've been drinking for a minute now so now i've crossed <laughs> the level where you know i'll tip more and i tip more but even when i'm down at like whatever place if i like the bartender i'll still tip what i would tip if i was at a more high-end you know yeah place right yeah so if you meet that upstart artist and then they say look my piece is 200 dollars, but the value of the last piece you got was ten thousand. Do you give that guy the two hundred dollars, or do you say, "Look, now I'm at the point where I'm paying ten thousand dollars for pieces, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna." I think that's I'm a bad premise. You. If the guy asks me two hundred dollars for a piece, and I think it's worth that, I'll pay that. If I think something's worth ten thousand dollars, I may pay that too. But I'm saying, but there's a, there's a difference. Up. There's a difference between investing in art and collecting art. Investment pieces are those high end pieces that you pay a lot of money for with an appreciation anticipation but as a collector it's about an expression of your life and lifestyle that you're going for so it's a subtle difference and both of those can add value so i might buy a piece for a few hundred dollars from a local guy who i know and i know his piece is going to appreciate in value and maybe not exponentially in my lifetime but somewhere in the 2070s, it may be significant as an ex as an expiration as an expression of Detroit at that particular point in time. Mm. So, don't, they're two different. They're very different things. Art as an investment and art collecting are two very different things. So, I'm a collector. 
And sometimes those pieces that I collect are also significant investments or heirloom pieces. And I know that I know the difference when I purchase them. What makes you, what makes that a difference? Because uh, tip, if I'm going to buy a Romare Bearden or an Amos Kennedy or uh, uh, Annie Lee, mm -hmm. these are people who have been exhibited, exhibited at various levels and they've 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 reached a certain uh, stratosphere of price point and they're only going to get better. Um, whether it's Basquiat or some of these other well-known and celebrated artists versus the local artist who is um, just as productive, just as creative, but not as well marketed. Basquiat validated. was a local artist at one point. Exactly. But they, but they haven't been, and this is kind of like those, the struggles as artists. It's like they have not been validated. It's but like I would pay. Validation is relative. So, but no, because they have not been validated because those systems that validated the, the artist you just mentioned places the price point for them being X. Validation starts early. Like validation starts early. The person who encouraged the artist to pursue it, it could be the art teacher, it could be a family member and other close supporters who say, this is really good. You should pursue this. That's one form of validation. Yeah. The time somebody buys your piece at an art festival or the time somebody says, I really admire what you did at the process last week. Those are all various types of validation. But when, when somebody's sitting around talking like this is an art investment, that's the validation that most artists are seeking. So they can I think most artists you know, want to make a living. And I think the, the investment validation, that happens after an artist is dead more often than not, right? Um, that's, that's, you know, oh, wow, this, you know, this, this piece is like really valuable. This artist has been gone for a long time or this happens later in their career. And I don't, I think a lot mm -hmm. of people spend... Too much time and energy thinking in that that mindset rather than you know okay this is the artist now you know whether or not they make it big that's not the thing that matters the thing that matters is do I like this piece can I afford this piece do I want to buy this piece collect what you love and the value will will follow see because that's that's weird because I, I guess I'm one of those people where I would feel like I would when I get to the barometer if Sydney if I'm if I go to a place and this may just be me and my thinking, but if I go to a place, especially like with that personal transaction, and this could definitely be the artist in me. If my value that I I said I want to spend a thousand dollars on a piece, and then Sydney's like I only got pieces for a hundred, I'm gonna give her that G. Because it's like the value to this that I'm. I'm placed glad you already. have money to give away like that. If she has, but it's not even bucks. money to give away as much as it's like I've already placed that value in my mind. Like it's, it's been a lot of times I'll go to shows and I'll buy like 15 tickets to the same show. Well, I'm gonna go paint some stuff right now. I'll be back in a half an hour, <laughs> and I got plenty of things I can sell you to for a thousand dollars. See, whereas I, I feel like I feel like it's a it's a value that goes over and beyond when I've seen a person's... There's an exchange. There's no question about it. It's like anything else we buy. You know, the value is realized when something is sold. So if I say I have this piece for sale and I mention no price, and you say, I'll, I'll give you $1,000 for that. Now it's worth $1,000 when you give it to me. Mm -hmm. So I can't put, you know, it value is relative. But nobody creates a piece and say, well, and they're finished with it and go like, this is worth $10,000. That's not how it works. 
I mean, it's what I mean. The price is arbitrary. It's whatever price they choose to Th- put them. That's what I just said. Yeah, I agree. So I mean, I would say most artists are probably always creating from the standpoint of you can't place a value on what I do. I disagree with mm-hmm. that, but I understand your perspective. Mm. Well, speaking of value, um, the there's a couple artists that. Um, I think the city really needs to look out for who are doing some fantastic stuff. So okay. um, that's that's who we featured last week at the process. So um, Darius Baber, um, he is on Instagram at Darius Baber Artist, D-A-R-I-U-S-B-A-B-E-R-A-R-T-I-S-T. Um, and he is a visual artist and he does a lot of work um, with figure studies in oil. Um, incredibly talented guy and just really solid human. Um, and then we also featured uh, Myron Watkins, who is a photographer, multimedia, uh, multimedia guy, and um, he is uh, of the Yellow Wall fame. He started that uh, that project. So he's on Instagram at Mr. Picture. So it's I think it's M R P C T R. Um, but if you, you Google him, Myron Watkins, you can find his website and, um, he does great photography, videography work. And so they actually, they worked together. Um, Myron did a series of, uh, photo shoots, um, and worked with Darius to produce these photos. And then, um, we printed the photos on canvas, uh, and Darius painted over the photos that Myron took. Um, so an- another thing that I didn't mention, last week's event was guided by a theme. Um, each event will be guided by a theme, so that informs the artwork, the vibe of the room, um, and just the, the way that everything looks and feels. So the theme for February was love, um, as defined by the Greek classification, so love for self, uh, your family, your friends, uh, your romantic partner, a place, and all the artwork explores these themes of love. Um, so Darius and Myron work together to create these pieces, which are for sale for anybody interested. Uh, we've got three 30 by 40 canvases that um, feature photography by Myron Watkins and painting by Darius Baber. And then we've got 14 16 by 20 prints uh, from the original photo shoots that are also for sale. So if any of our wonderful listeners tonight are interested in buying art, um, you can email us at info at theprocessdetroit.com or you can check out some of the photos from the event at www.theprocessdetroit.com. There's also a link where you can view some of the art to buy. Um, and that's, that's a really great way to uh, just support, support your local community, your local artists, see some of the talent in this city that you may or may not have heard about, and just su- support creativity, you know, by local living artists. Okay, I like it. Um, I do want you to give, as we get closer to the end of everything, um, and already in o- overtime, but uh, that's cool. That's cool. Good discussion. Good thinking discussion. Um, where do you see visual art in Detroit headed? Like, uh, what direction do you see uh, if you had to take a, a look at it? And then you can talk a little bit about your position now because that sort of intertwines it a little bit. But talk a little bit about uh, 
Detroit art, where is it heading visually? Mm-hmm. What should people be thinking? I know you mentioned just definitely get out and network and meet people, a part of the different communities mm-hmm. connected to artistry, but what else uh, What else has happened? Yeah, I mean, I think the really beautiful thing is that everything is happening right now. Um, Detroit's local and or underground art scene is thriving. Uh, something that the city has always been fortunate to nurture is this uh, this this really strong group of creative folks throughout the years, um, and that continues through today. So you have a lot of uh, my peers, um, people that have been in the creative scene for a while, who are launching these new art ventures or are continuing to build on something that they've grown a little while ago. Uh, So just really, you know, I don't have anything specific to name except for the process. Y'all should keep an eye on that. That's going to be sweet. Heck yeah. Yeah. June is Black Music Month. I'm doing a lot of stuff in June. So So we may have to uh, uh, intersect stuff. So like I, I mentioned, the process each month is themed. The theme for June will be blackness. So like that it. is perfect. I'm doing a, uh, this will be the first uh, people to hear this, but uh, with uh, I'm, we're going to get stretch money on it. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll have my man Sterling Toes and Nick Speed. Yeah. I may get Sheafy on this yeah. too. And Sheafy's yeah. uh, cool with, I just started following Darius on here, but nice. it yeah. is the 30 year anniversary of uh, Public Enemies. It takes a nation of millions to, mm. hold, to hold us back. Mm-hmm. Album, which mm-hmm. at the time, is like my uh one of my most uh it's like the the what the autobiography of Malcolm X is to me in literature form mm-hmm. that album in a lot of ways is to me in musical form so mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna do uh a couple different things uh in honor of that um so we may have to intertwine something. Yeah, if you um, want to do a collabo, yeah, you know, let's, do, that's, let's talk. Let's that's talk. that's what's up. Because um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be all types of stuff. We'll get Sydney to be flavor flag. We we'll get a big clock. <laughs> no, I've been I'll doing it for a while. These folks don't believe do it. Break yeah, break we got this. But yeah, no, that's amazing, and that that is a perfect example of the stuff that you need to look out for. Right? Mm-hmm. These are. Um, local artists, local musicians, local thought leaders that are blazing the path, making the way. So just, yes, that stuff to look out for ranges from, you know, the exhibitions at the DIA to MOCAD to Mm -hmm. a pop-up exhibit and, you know, a small gallery or alternative gallery space where, you know, you come and just experience new art. So I think... Um, a really great way for folks to kind of keep a pulse on that sort of thing would be Instagram. Um, really mm-hmm. great platform, especially for artists and creatives Wait, because it's let, so visual. Let me, let me say this, too. I got older people that listen, too. That <laughs> Thank are, you. Not on the, gram. <laughs> the gram can be something you can learn something from. As yes. Cindy just said. Yes. It depends on who you follow. Now, if you just mm-hmm. follow the shade room, you may just find yourself uh, down a... a, a a path of gossip but it's ways to get information as as you know whether you watch tmz or entertainment tonight all right continue (laughs) that no that is a great point and i think um something that uh that i i'm trying to do with the process especially is just be really 
cross-disciplinary in the way that I spread the word. So it ranges from, you know, Instagram promotions, Facebook promotions to word of mouth, um, working on getting some stuff in the paper for it, um, right, having and, flyers and around this. town. Let me say this. Anytime you want a flyer, Detroit is different. It's always down to uh, sponsor the back half of it. But anytime you give me the stuff, uh, just shoot me the info and yeah. I will definitely uh, proliferate it that's why I have Detroit is different. It's it's a it's a unique form of media and getting word out. So the process because I'm cool with Sydney is always and will always be supported through Detroit is different. I appreciate you. And next time you can actually in leading up to even the April one, you can have whatever artists you're gonna have come. They can come. We can podcast with them and yeah, all of that good stuff. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. There we go. Because they, they walk out with audio, video, all types of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm with that. So now come the classic Detroit is different questions. Uh, both of you all got to answer independently. Question number one, I'm going to sling at Mark because Mark's just been uh, more so. It's like it's like Mark chimed in. He was like a cut man. He was <laughs> like uh, 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 Angelo Dundee. Or, or I guess we in Detroit, so I'm gonna say Manny Stewart. So um, with this, classic Detroit is different questions. Very first car, make, model, and where did you go when you got your first car? Oh, without a doubt, '76 Nova. Mm. Uh, oh man, that's did all the work good. on the engine myself. <laughs> that's a uh, good. Drove that that's right a... down to the rock and drove it right to Belle Isle. So, ah. and I noticed I said Bell Isle because I'm from Detroit. That's one word. Yeah. <laughs> well, you actually really from Detroit, really black Detroit. He said The Rock, as that is the name of it, as as we used to always say. Wow, that's a that's a good first. How long did it last? I had that car for four or five years. Me and my friends, we worked on it all the time, and we put every piece of that engine together, took it apart, put it back together. You could never do that now, but I, I love that car. 76 Nova. That's a good man. I know people will probably, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. Chevy Nova, man. They still, it's just amazing. And what's really funny is that I, as I learned Spanish many years later, Nova me, in Spanish means doesn't go. But we made it work <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. Um, and then uh, that that's definitely <laughs> such an excellent man. I, oh, I'm, I, I'm jealous of that first ride. That's a good first ride. That's a good first ride. Mm. Sydney, first car, year, make, model. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, I know this is Detroit is different, but I drive a Mazda. Hey, uh, so mean? it's... Um, I a, thought Mazda was... Uh, Used to be owned by Ford. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, like. All right, used I, to be. Yeah, I guess that counts. <laughs> so I, I did buy it used, but um, uh, 2011 Mazda three speed hatchback. Hmm. Yeah, the the crazy thing for me, like riding my first car, was uh, there used to be a thing on what were called Highland Appliance, and uh, I remember getting the the stereo system and installing. Me and my buddies, we put in the speakers, we put in the cassette player. <laughs> and uh, all the rest of that stuff, we did all that stuff ourselves. And it struck me that here I am driving a car that was um, local on the Davidson Expressway listening to Motown. And I realized then how unique a place we were in and mm-hmm. how there was no place else you could have that experience. Mm-hmm. Driving a local product on the first expressway in the United States and 
listening to local talent. Mm. It's an amazing place to, that we call home here in Detroit. As as Highland is, as we know, not that far from me. I remember That's right. that place uh, in Highland Park along with the Montgomery Ward and the Sears where I used to always get a coat on Layerway. Yeah, mm-hmm. Highland Layerway. Park uh, has had many a transition since my birth. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that, that Woodward Strip, as they call it, the... Uh, what do they call it? The retail corridor. Uh, mm. th- th- that's the term they use. Yeah. So, Loosely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Ah! It has completely transitioned over time. But it's a lot of people talking about doing some things in Highland Park. But yeah, Highland Pines is something that I do remember. Um, along with, like, I guess now it's like I'm, I'm rattling off stuff. But across the street, what used to be... Uh, what well, used to be, um, nah, it wasn't Dotnetta. Man. Miley and Miley. Miley and Miley, mm. which now is owned by uh, attorney, uh, attorney Ty Perkins, the Perkins Law Group, and they're yep. doing what they do. So shout them out. Miley and Miley, one of the few places uh, at four in the morning you can <laughs> get shrimp. <laughs> a good a good after cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> a good after cabaret eatery. We like it. All right. So second question. Um, it's the end of the fireworks. You got to play three songs for the crowd. You're on Jefferson and Woodward and you're the DJ. What three songs are you playing? Sydney, the question comes to you first because you took, Mark took the first one last. Oh, man. After the fireworks. Um, and remember, like, let me, people always say this question. Like, am I supposed to play to the crowd? You're your own DJ. You can be one of those DJs that doesn't care about the crowd or you can be the DJ that, that looks to cater to the crowd. It's so up to you. You know what? I think I'm going to play to the middle here. Um, you got Jefferson. You're off the water. It's night. Good vibes. I think I would start with um, some Slum Village. Uh, get okay. this money. That, okay. that would be, you know, just a good chill, yet, you know, lightly party, uh, party thing to to cap the night off. Um, I don't know, keeping it local, maybe some Pasal Aqua. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Just uh, like chill stuff, um, you know, What's tribe. Um, I don't know, at the party? What song you can consider? Okay, at the party. Yeah. What uh, last song? You got one more. Okay, last song. Oh, man. Um, let's say... Um, oh, Let's do something by Tribe. Um, something by Tribe. I don't have a specific song. Gotta, but just in keeping with the vibe. You got to give one. Man. Okay. Um... Can I kick it? I like it. I like it. You started off actually sitting at with your microphone check. <laughs> yeah, you know. Rest in peace, Fife. Indeed. Mark, it's on you. You are the DJ. Oh, man, I'd kind of go old school. Um, celebrate. Cool and gang. You know uh, what? You are, That is like one of the most... Uh, okay, it's that song... <laughs> And you may hit the other one, but that is high up in in the in people people select that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, make this a night to remember by Shalimar. Okay, because it's fireworks, it's family, it's all that kind of stuff. Okay, and um, 
last. Um, mm, I don't know. What would be a third song? Um, there's so many that come to mind. Uh, I'd go out with some Stevie. Um, not St um, what's the what's the Temptation song? Um, the Dream song. What is it? Uh, um, mm. I'll, I'll come back to it. But I, I would definitely do the first two, and then there'd be uh, something by the Temptations. That's, that's uh that's reminiscent of classic Detroit. I would do some classic Detroit Motown. Okay. All right. But yeah, celebrate and uh and, and Make this a night to remember by Shalomar. Those two definitely I would play. And uh but uh celebrate is very high along with one Earth Wind and Fire song. <laughs> They're hot. September. Even September. though people always yeah. ask people huh. like, no it's wonder. Not September. This is why I'm like, hey, you're the DJ. You're the yeah. DJ, play whatever yeah. you want. You know what I'm saying? People yeah. may people may throw a tomato at you, <laughs> <laughs> or they may dance. Hey. I, I think you you can't go wrong with the elements. But mm -hmm. let's see, uh, Temptations. Mm, if I had to pick a Temptation song, but I like funk, so I it definitely be I I pick I pick Standing on the Top with Rick James. But that mm -hmm. be me. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. Rick James and the Temps. Temptations sing. Yeah, that'll <laughs> yes. work. And Dennis Edwards just passed. Uh, rest in peace. Rest, rest in, in peace. peace. Rest in peace. Um, very last Detroit question. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? And I'll start with you, Mark. Ooh. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to go for somebody. Uh, Roger Pinsky. Mm. Okay. That that is definitely the first time I've I've, I've heard him spoke of, <laughs> never renamed it. But why well, why do you pick Roger Pinsky? Well, in my professional life, uh, I think Roger Pinsky has uh, contributed some some things very significant to Detroit's rebirth uh, and ongoing revitalization that we're all enjoying today. Mm -hmm. And often we forget the people closest to us because they're too familiar, mm -hmm. and it's easy to dismiss people who are doing something every day to make a difference in a big way. He didn't just, um, he preceded Dan Gilbert. He preceded a lot of other names that we know. Mm -hmm. And we think about Detroit's current state of rejuvenation. Uh, but I think Roger Pitsky was definitely a progenitor of a lot of the stuff that we see happening. And, and if we don't have the rejuvenation that he spurred, we don't have the changes on Livernois and Six Mile or, uh, Grand River and Southfield and Rosedale Park and so forth. So Roger Penske would be my choice. I had Penske Avenue all day. Okay. <laughs> Sydney. Oh man. Uh, maybe. Um, I'd probably say Jessica Caremore. Um, she's by Detroit she's for Detroit she's about Detroit and she is a fantastic voice um, for the city and our people and what what we've got going on and just things in society at large so that uh, yeah and just you know horse or no horse sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh um, 
yeah and uh just uh you know support uh support local art that's i'm with all right if the people want to get in contact with you what should they do how do they reach you so um you can shoot me an email at info at theprocessdetroit.com. Um, you can check out the website, theprocessdetroit.com. Um, if you are on the gram and you are so inclined, you can follow me at repunxel, R-E-P-U-N-X-E-L. Mark? Oh, man, I'm old. I don't have none of that. <laughs> okay, so they just look me up. It, can, should they send you a pigeon, like <laughs> yes. a carrier pigeon? Carrier pigeon. <laughs> Like, you, have a, you have a bat signal and they have to reach Commissioner well, Gordon. I, you know, I'm still trying to get my VCR to stop blinking 12. <laughs> but um, I, I actually, we didn't get, really get into this, but I'm at the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. Uh, you can feel free to reach out there. I'm the only mark at the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. Mm-hmm. So you can look me up on the website there. Okay. That works. Thank you so much. This was a good interview. I'm going to definitely have to get both of you guys back. Because I still feel like it was so much more to say, especially about um, some different pieces that I want to get into that that are coming to life. Um, and uh, it was just recently an event to honor the legacy of Charles McGee. Uh, mm. Mike, oh, yeah. put that together and uh, another hip hop homie doing a lot of other stuff. But um, but I, we didn't even get into public art. Like like oh, in yeah, parks we're all and about stuff like that. Art. I really yeah. wanted to talk about that. Yeah. I know you're you're have a strong connection to your family to that Virginia Park neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of pieces just like yeah. in there that people don't really even know about. That's true. Starting with the Martin Luther King bus at Peace Park and mm-hmm. all the way up to Gordon Park. So there's a there's a lot there to see and experience. Mm-hmm. If you if you send us the bat signal, we will be back. <laughs> yes, uh, we, I gotta reach Commissioner Gordon <laughs> and wait for a full moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always did wonder that. I mean, this is completely full overtime. But like, if it was not a full moon, like, how would Batman know? But I guess in in Gotham, it was always a full moon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kari. Thank you, Kari.